When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's breaking it down so you don't have to. This is Breaking It Down with Frank McKay on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Douglas Sentry is our very special guest, and uh, he has written a, a wonderful book, The Last Boss of Brighton, Boris Biba. Nayfield and the rise of the Russian mob in America, and it is upon us. It's out, and our best-selling author, guest, Douglas Sentry, is here, and we're going to talk to him all about this. Fascinating study. People um, uh, people love the subject of the mob, but the, the Russian mob, uh, it, we don't have an awful lot, and certainly nothing as, as detailed as what Douglas is going to give us. Douglas, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, listen, congrats. You're getting rave reviews, and you've had a lot of success over the years, but it's got to be exciting to get this book out. And if you can, give us a give us a little rundown on Biba. Okay, well, Biba Neyfeld uh, was born in uh, the Soviet Union like, two years after the Great Patriotic War, which was uh, you know World War II. And uh, his father was in a gulag at the time. He really became a criminal at a very young age, uh, a hooligan, they called it, and did some time, did some, like, three years in a really tough work camp from 18 to 21. As people know, in the 70s, they started to let Soviet Jews come out, go to Israel, and he was one. Uh, his family were, you know, law-abiding people except for him. He had made a bunch of money in the black market in the Soviet Union. So fast forward, he's in Brooklyn. People know Brighton Beach became, like, ground central for the Soviet Jewish emigre world, and there weren't a ton of criminals among them, about the 40,000 community, but there were 500 probably professional hardened criminals. And as the Italian-Americans soon saw, and the law enforcement saw, these guys weren't afraid of American prisons. Boris was on three stints in U.S. prisons, federal, for racketeering, a number of things, attempted murder. And he always tells me, you can't compare a Soviet prison. It's like, Soviet prison to U.S. prison is like comparing Hell to paradise. I mean, <laughs> they were worried about what... They literally say that. Like, the, the joke, people always say it's like a country club, but he was just like, you know, we had a great weight room, and we got great food, we would play bocce ball, and like, and the Soviet Union, he said, we were just trying to make enough, get enough calories not to starve to death. You know, and it really was... So, Boris is of that last generation. They don't really exist anymore. These guys grew up in the USSR under the very repressive, repressive communist system, and it shaped them into a really, um, I don't want to give a flattering portrait because they were not productive members of American society, but that famous gasoline tax ripoff, you know, with Michael Francesi, and, you know, he's the most famous Italian-American. But it was a partnership with four of the five uh, the um, Kozanostra families and Russian speaking Jewish guys. And they made, Michael Francis alone made eight to 10 million a week in cash. That's a famous, his famous number, which he talks to me on the book. Boris was also making millions from gasoline, ripping off the gasoline tax 
and the feds could not figure out how they were doing it. And just not to give away too much in the book, but these guys learned how to steal from the state in the Soviet Union. That was the art form, and it was actually seen as something good because you were resisting communism. You were risking the death penalty, but they took that very sophisticated way of stealing from the state. Some of these guys were, were actually university-educated criminals, and uh, they started stealing from the U.S. state, meaning Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you know, every fraud you can think of. When they saw a chink in the institutional army, armor, they just took it and ran with it. Gasoline was the most famous, but they did so many scams because they just figured out if you have a loophole in the bureaucracy of any kind of system, you can exploit it. And they did that very, very successfully. Boris is the last man standing. Basically, everybody from that generation is gone, murdered, mostly murdered or died of old age. He's the last guy who was really a boss who's around to tell his story, and he's He's 74, so it's uh, it's actually remarkable he's alive to tell it because he got shot, he had a bomb placed under his car, and many other assassination attempts. So uh, he's really a kind of remarkable figure in terms of being around to talk about this stuff. Let me urge everyone to get this book, The Last Boss of Brighton, Boris Biba, Nefeld, and the Rise of the Russian mob in America. Our very special guest is Douglas Sentry, and he is the author, best-selling author, uh, but he's the author of this uh, this new book, and it's, uh, you gotta get it, guys. You have to get it before there's a film on it, and then, uh, you know, you wanna be the first to say, hey, uh, uh, you know, I got this, I got it before it was a film, and all of that. Uh, and let me ask you, Douglas, uh, personality-wise, how do you differentiate Boris from from some of, let's say, our American um, mobsters uh, or the Italian mobsters? Uh, how much different uh, was he uh, in the personality department than than what we would recognize as as being typical mobsters? Um, well, I was talking to a guy, a famous Russian language radio host, who was actually he's a good friend of Boris, named Sieva Kaplan, and he was actually the target of a hit. Boris was, was contracted to take him out by a rival. And uh, anyway, the guy who took out the hit died to another friend. And he was like, Boris, Boris is a complicated guy because he is a very charming guy, but also very dangerous. He's extremely charming. And, you know, all these guys are sociopathic personalities. I mean, just by nature, they are to do that life. I mean, there's been some glamorization of the Italian-American mafia. But if you think about it, you have to kill your best friend. You know, these are famous stories. You know, Donnie Brasco hears this from, uh, you know, Joe Pistone heard it from, from Lefty. You know, in that life, you know, you get called for, you go, and it's your best friend who does it. And that's, it's, it's equally cut through. I think the Russians felt... To me, they're like a throwback to the era of Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky, meaning that they came from nothing. They came to America with nothing. And so Boris had a few sit-downs. He dealt with a guy named Gaspite Queso. I don't know if you guys remember that name. Murderous guy in the Lucchese, actually the underboss of the Lucchese crime family. And they were, they were kind of partnered up in the gasoline. And he said Gaspite was just a treacherous guy. Even the Italians didn't trust him. Um, Boris is very, very dangerous and very, very unafraid of the Italians. And I found this an interesting kind of dynamic because you normally think, well, Italians and the Russians, maybe, maybe the Russians would be more impressed by the Italian power. No, they said, you know, we had nothing to lose. He would go to these sit-downs. One time a guy tried to flex on him and say, Boris, you know who I'm with? You know, I, I knew your boss. And, and Boris's boss, previous boss, had been murdered. So he said, are you here to talk to me or are you here to talk to my boss? Because my boss has been in the cemetery for quite a while. 
And then Boris ends up getting into it with this guy and saying, you want a war? This is a made guy. And the guy's Boris, relax, I don't want a war. And I said, so Boris, why were you so aggressive with this guy? He goes, these Italians, by this point, they have businesses and kids in college. I mean, we're immigrants. We don't have anything. Like he was living, he came to the U.S. and he lived in the housing projects in Coney Island. You know, and they scrambled. He went from that, from real poverty, to having a Bentley, a place in Antwerp, a place in Staten Island where actually, you know, these guys live a life fairly close to most of the Italian. I think most of your listeners know uh, Staten Island is really where a lot of the guys from Bensonhurst and, yep. uh, you know, South Brooklyn. So but mixed in there are a lot of the Russian guys. And they, they, they actually, in prison, they hang out together. And they and they play bocce ball and do all that stuff. But um, personality wise, he's a scary guy, really scary guy. And I and I think that the Russians brought a ruthlessness, and and it was really formed in the Soviet times. Because I'm not the first to say this. I say it in the book. There was no mafia more powerful than the the Communist Party, because by the 70s. There was so much black market activity. Probably 30% of the Soviet economy was black market. And it was guys like Boris. He had this racket with kind of no-show jobs in, in Siberia. But in order to do it, you had to partner with some Communist Party official. So the, at the top of the food chain in the Soviet Union was basically a, a mafia state, a mafia family called the Communist Party of the USSR, if you want to look at it that way. So bringing that mentality to America... I mean, essentially, they were not afraid of American prisons, and they really weren't afraid of other American criminals. So that brought them a level of ruthlessness and uh, aggression that, I mean, the U.S. Congress, I quoted extensively, in 1996, had to have a big series of hearings on the threat of Russian organized crime in America, because law enforcement was kind of trying to figure out, well, how do we deal with these guys? If they're not afraid to go to prison, uh, and, you know, it's a complicated thing. So, but I also liked hanging out with Boris sometimes because he's a charming guy. You know, we drank some vodka and we hung out in the, the famous. Uh, they love to go to the banya, the steam rooms, uh, and that's my kind of style of writing. <laughs> let, I actually try to get to know a guy personally. Let, Sorry, go ahead. Let, well, let me tell you, I wish I had an hour with you. I know you're on a schedule here. I, I, I would th- be thrilled to have you for <laughs> a longer period of time. What a book! Everyone's got to get this. A quick uh, social media site, and I'll let you go. Uh, yeah, you can go to my website, DouglasCentury.com. So that's D O U G L A S E N T U R Y, DouglasCentury.com. Uh, the book, if you go to HarperCollins, it's William Morrow. It's great in free. Uh, just go check it out. There's a wonderful audio book narrated by a, a couple of guys. One one plays me, one plays Boris. There's an ebook and there's the hardcover. So I appreciate the support and feel Great free job. to Google Douglas Century Last Boss and you'll find it online and all your booksellers. Let's get a longer let's get a longer interview going. Uh, Douglas, you're the best. Congrats and uh, we'll be we'll be talking about the book as we let you go. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and thanks to your listeners for, for checking out the book. The Last Boss of Brighton, <laughs> Boris Biba, Nafeld, and the Rise of the Russian Mob in America is the name of the book. Check it out. I, I wish I had more time with him. I would talk about this for an hour, and he wants to talk. You could hear. He's just on a schedule. He's got a bunch of people. He's on a radio tour, and... Jeez, uh, I, I hate, hate to cut him off. What a what a fascinating subject. We need to talk ab- about this book more. He's alive. I didn't I didn't know that. And I just I, I know very little about uh, Biba Mayfeld, but uh, 
you know, what a what a character. In uh, in the sense of uh, you know he's he's not your traditional Italian gangster or he's not uh, you know Armenian. Well, I guess maybe you know uh, you know people would uh, relate uh, him uh, because of Eastern you know being Eastern Europe and and so forth. Uh, um, you know more with uh, the Armenian mob, but uh, Russian mob and where there was nothing to nothing to mess with. And this is a guy who is uh, he's still alive, and ah. I, I would have loved to get into more with Douglas Century, best-selling author. Douglas Century is the author, once again, The Last Boss of Brighton, Boris Bieber, Nefeld, and The Rise of the Russian Mob in America. Frank McKay signing off. See you all next time on Breaking It Down. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 107.1 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Girl in the Picture is number one right now on Netflix. And uh, big reason why this came out so well is the, uh, the award-winning investigative work of journalist Matt Birkbeck. He first revealed the jaw-dropping story, and it is a—I've got to say it—it's a—it's a must-watch. It's—it's—it's uh, shocking to watch, but a lot of great work from Matt over the years. And thrilled to have you, Matt. How are you? I'm doing fine. Matt, can you give us a, a quick rundown of it? You know, without spoiling anything, of course. Give us a a quick rundown of uh, of the story. So it's uh, it's based on two books that I wrote: A Beautiful Child. In Finding Sharon, and it tells the story of this remarkable young woman who I've come to know as Sharon Marshall, uh, though she had many names, and this life that she led with this fellow who claimed to be her father. Uh, and there are a zillion twists and turns in this story, uh, which resulting now in the uh, search for her true identity, uh, which is where I got involved in it. And um, so audiences have, uh, you know, they were drawn to the books and actually it was the readers that kept the story alive all these years. And it finally got into the hands of the National Center for Missing and its Exploited Children as well as the FBI. And they were able to um, actually identify this girl. And that's the story that we tell in the film, which and audiences and the film just came out on Wednesday and audiences around the world have been just drawn to it. And uh, so we're actually pretty stunned at how quickly this all happened. How much have you learned since the release of the books and now the release in between the release of the books and the release of the film? Is there anything new that you learned? Was there information that came forward because of the books that aided in the uh, in the in the movie? So we we actually that's a, it's a good question. Uh, we actually we started filming a year ago. We were, we actually began working on this project with Netflix, and they were great. 
they just they gave us the creative freedom to do what we wanted to do. Um, in addition to having a great director on board with Sky Borgman, who um, just got the story from the beginning. And it was, you know, we just traveled down this rabbit hole again, and we did learn some new information regarding uh, the identities of some other people. But we also, you know, the story tells how we found, um, you know, other family members and made connections there. And we made introductions of one family member to another who never even, they never even knew that they had existed. Uh, so some of them are in the film. Some of them are in my books. We couldn't, you know, this is a 90-minute documentary, so we couldn't, obviously you can't tell the whole story, and we had to make some really hard decisions. So what you don't see in the film, you'll, you, you'll likely either hear in the five-part podcast that accompanies the film, or you just, you'll see, you'll read everything in, in, in the books, A Beautiful Child and Finding Sharon. Girl in the Picture, just a reminder for those who are just joining us or turning on their radios a little late, Matt Birkbeck is our very special guest, uh, uh, and this is a must-watch on Netflix. It's number one, number one on Netflix right now, and for, for good reason. Uh, Matt, going back to the origins prior to the book, what was it in particular about this story that, that hit you, and what was the genesis of you picking up on this story? So I just come off of uh, my very first book, which was on a fellow by the name of Robert Durst. And uh, it was someone sent me a, a photograph, which was this girl in the picture. And she was sitting on the lap. It was supposed to be a family photo of a man that was supposed to be her father. But you could tell that there was something deeply disturbing about the girl and the look on her face. And there was something terribly wrong. And that led me down this path beginning in 2002 to where I actually, you know, I went down to interview the supposed father. I spent, he was in prison, I spent four hours with him and then traveled the country interviewing all of her friends and other law enforcement that were involved in the story and ended up writing the book. Unfortunately, the book, I didn't have the ending I wanted, which was her identity, uh, but that was something that would come later in time. So, you know, unlike his, Unlike other stories I've ever worked on or other investigations I've ever worked on where you do the story and you pretty much just move on to the next one, you know, this one stuck with me. And it stuck with me because of of Sharon and because of the reaction to her and everyone fell in love with her. And everyone that was involved was deeply devoted to trying to find her true identity. Uh, Matt, you mentioned law enforcement, and, uh, you know, obviously there's uh, always mixed uh, reviews uh, on law enforcement. You you have it in your family, right? You have law enforcement. Your, your dad was, uh, uh, you know, an officer. What was your impression of law enforcement on how they handle cases like this, not necessarily this, uh, and, and the way they handle it once you got involved, once a journalist got involved? So they were great. Law enforcement in this particular story, every one of them, from the FBI and the prosecutors, the federal prosecutors in Oklahoma, to the uh, police in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, and then the state prosecutor's office there. Uh, this was one example of law enforcement working with each other seamlessly. These were these were just great people, wonderful people. Uh, even the FBI agents that got involved in this later on, uh, they all, you know, I, I'm forever grateful to them for all the work that they did and, you know, the fact that they all played nice with each other. And it was all because of her. I mean, everyone knew her story and they just 
you know, like I did, they felt very, very drawn to her, and just like readers did, and now viewers around the world, they just felt very drawn to to Sharon, and uh, felt great empathy for her, and she was the reason why we all did what we did. Girl in the Picture is upon us, everyone. Uh, Netflix, it's number one on Netflix, and it's just a, a wonderful documentary. It's a must-watch. I'm here with uh, a man, a big reason why this is happening, and, and much more importantly, uh, why uh, this story has come to life, and, and some uh, just wonderful work. Award-winning investigative journalist Matt Birkbeck is our very special guest for another minute or so. Uh, Matt, give us something that you learned since the uh, the film is out about you know about the process, let's say, or or even about how you think of uh, un unfolding things like this, uh, and and give us anything you want to add, and and please give us your social media sites before you leave. So this was you know doing the film. I think I mentioned earlier before trying to get a film together. I was trying to get you know I'm the executive producer on this program, and there's three other producers that I worked with who were just great people, um, and of course the director Sky Borgman who had her great vision for this project. Uh, I did not see how we were going to get this together in one episode, in one documentary. Uh, I was, I thought it had to be four, at least four episodes, but, you know, Sky said this could work as a doc, and uh, we did it. You know, she did it. You know, we were able to really focus on the really important parts and then really put it together in such a way that was compelling. And uh, it was just incredible watching... Uh, I've been involved in other film projects before off of my books, but never ever as close as I have with this one as a producer. And so just, you know, being involved in the filming and, and you know, the structuring and all of that and watching them work and Sky and her crew, it was just, uh, it, it's remarkable. When you see a film, it, I mean, people don't really understand, I don't think, the work that goes into it. But I was just amazed at how hard they all work, you know, crew calls, crew calls at seven in the morning, or sometimes you're up till two in the morning. And uh, it was just, you know, it was great. I was, I was really, you know, thankful to them for being involved with them in, in putting this together. Um, so it was something that I won't forget. Uh, and then as far as social media, I have a website, mattburkbeck.com. And I also now have a, I'm kind of new to social media. I'm, a, I'm more of an older dog. So uh, I have an Instagram site now. It's matt.berkbeck.author. And you can find info on the books and everything else that I do there. Matt, congratulations not only on Girl in the Picture, which is a, an important piece, uh, but all the great work you've done in your career. What a career you've put together as an investigative journalist. And uh, thrilled to have you here. Uh, Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Award-winning investigative journalist... Matt Birkbeck has been our very special guest. Girl in the Picture is the name of the uh, of the film, and it's uh, hey, listen, uh, you know, very very seldomly do you write a book and have something like this unfold and and get discovered. You know, kudos to to uh, Matt Birkbeck and and what he's done on this particular case. And you know, look, every once in a while, every once in a while, you do something that's important. This is important. This is just watch it. I don't want to spoil everything. He gave you an overview of it, but 
it's an important piece by uh, by a guy who is, uh, has really pieced together a nice career over uh, the uh, the course of time. I've known him in the past. I haven't talked to him in years and years, but I've, I've known him in the past. He's always been a talented guy. He was at NEW for a while doing uh, doing work, and he's published uh, newspapers and and uh, you know a lot of things over the years. And written, he's written for. But he's always been a great writer. Is uh, that's his, that's been his talent, and he's turned into a great investigative writer. And the uh, in this particular story, it's not an investigative writer trying to trying to hurt someone. It was a case where he, uh, you know, he did amazing work, and thank God uh, for Sharon that he did. Matt Birkbeck has been our very special guest. Check out a Girl in the Picture on Netflix. It's number one. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down. It's Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. Long Island Vibes. On 107.1 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Now here's your host, Frank McKay. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Thomas Ian Nicholas is our very special guest. And if you haven't heard the Thomas Ian Nicholas Band, uh, well, they're on their seventh album, and uh, they're writing for their seventh studio album, I should say. And I, I'm a big believer in, like, the ten-album band. So many bands uh, just put out, uh, you know, one album, two albums, whatever. But, you know, uh, the, these guys are getting closer and closer to that. A lot of great music along the way. A lot of great shows along the way. Uh, you, you know Thomas from his acting and uh, the the American Pie franchise, for sure, uh, as Kevin Myers. Uh, just absolutely uh, that whole group, that whole group around American Pie uh, kind of brings you back, and it's become the Porky's or the Animal House or whatever of the 90s, and it's, uh, it, it's always fun to go back there. Uh, new single is upon us, and it's called 1999. And it features Bowling for Soup, which is terrific, and uh, you know, kind of a, a reboot of 1985, the great song by uh, Bowling for Soup. But without further ado, let me bring in Thomas Ian Nicholas. Thomas, how are you? I'm good, Frank. How are you? Doing terrific, and uh, congrats on on the single. But really, congrats for for being around and and really putting putting so much music out there. A lot of people, like I said, they do one or two albums and they they take off ten years. Uh, it seems like you're always writing. I'm feeling remiss for burying my first three albums because I guess, technically speaking, I am working on my tenth album. I wow. just didn't like the first three, so I, I call that like college. And I just, I, I just destroyed all copies. <laughs> yeah. But that's, you know what, that's common, uh, you know, with artists and, and songwriters and everything else, but they're still there, right? You might not be where you are now without, uh, without having those three behind you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think the, what was it, the second, the second album I worked on was an EP that I recorded at Ricky Rocket's studio in Aquadolce. Wow. Um, you know, it just I didn't have the sound that I wanted when I was done with it, so I never released it. Um, but working with Ricky was fun. <laughs> yeah. Ricky Rocket of Poison fame. Yeah, who's uh, on tour now. I just saw them uh, in D.C. Uh, and then the next night, I was uh, a surprise guest at the Bowling for Soup show. They're on tour all summer long with Less Than Jake. So I popped out on stage and uh, and performed the new song, 1999, 
uh, with Bowling for Soup, and uh, you know everyone was was pretty surprised. Well, let's let's talk about it for for a moment. Give a uh, give like a genesis. When did the idea come to you uh, to to do it? It's a, it's a great idea because it's fun. People are going to enjoy it. Bowling for Soup. A great. I mean, uh, you know, let's face it. Uh, you're doing terrific things. Always uh, give us the genesis of of when this idea came up and, and when you started uh, writing it. You know, I can't take uh, complete credit for the inception of the idea. Jarrett and I did a movie podcast together, and we watched American Pie. And after the movie, we were we were playing a show. It was an acoustic show. He plays 1985. He gets through the first chorus. He goes, you know, we should sing lyrics about American Pie. And that was the, the birth of the idea. And from there... Um, we, we worked on it together in the studio, wrote the lyrics together, and I might be the only band doing a parody of a band with the band's full support. I mean, they're <laughs> the, 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 the band behind me, Jarrett, who wrote the lyrics, you know, with me is singing the harmonies. It's amazing. They're just great, a great group of guys. And I'm so, so stoked for this song. Yeah, listen, I, I am too, and I, you know, I think people are going to look at it as as being fun. And when people see you, and and let's face it, cast members in general from American Pie, it's usually a good feeling. You know, it's uh, you you either get it or you don't. And I, you know, I, I wonder when you first heard about the role when you first either you know either read for it or saw um, you know a script on it. Uh, did you have any idea, and I'm sure people have asked you this a million times, but uh, have you had any idea that it would have the legs, it would have the lasting power? And I'm talking about American Pie and the franchise. Yeah, you know, when I negotiated the contract, I said, I'll only do this first film if you make four of them and it becomes a cult classic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I was just happy to have a job, and uh, I'm so... Uh, enamored by the success and grateful for the opportunities that it's that it's it's given me. I mean, so much so that you know now here I am in the the third or well, I guess I'm 36 years into my career and I'm producing films now. My last film that I produced uh, is called Adverse Lionsgate. Put it in theaters and I got to go head to head with Mickey Rourke because wow, who else would run the dangerous crime syndicate in a crime drama besides Mickey Rourke? Oh, that's terrific. I, and I, how long have you been into producing? Oh, my goodness. Well, I produced my, my first film when I was about 22 uh, that I wrote and directed as well. Uh, and it's since that time, I've done, I think, six features. Um, you know, and, and we did a, a, a vampire movie that Sony released a, a few years ago called Living Among Us with William Stadler and the late uh, John Hurd. Uh, and I had worked with John way back in the day in 1989 on Radio Flyer. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it's it's a fun thing, and I've got a few few more on the burner. So, you know, developing some more feature films and some television shows while writing my quote-unquote seventh album. So I'm just basically staying very, very busy. Yeah, let me just, and not not to bring up a, a sore point, but the, the first three albums, I mean, uh, you completely burn them. There's no no digital footprint. There's no uh, no memory of these. I, you have to have them hidden away somewhere where you can kind of go back to them and, and you know, 100 years from now and say, my God, uh, let me check out what I did there. Uh, did, you, did you burn them to the ground? I mean, it, it, did you completely hide them? So the first album... 
I finished it in in '98. Uh, I had just booked the first American Pie, and I asked them, "Hey, can I put a song on the soundtrack?" And they said, "Yeah." And then they didn't do it. At the same time, Tower Records ordered three thousand copies, so I printed five thousand copies, got a distribution deal. When Tower Records received the albums, the distribution company went belly up, so Tower Records sent me back the three thousand. I put them in storage for ten plus years. But by the time I got to 2008 on my fourth album, which I call my first, I, I really honed the sound. And so I was like, well, oh, I don't think I'm going to cease that again. So, yeah, I, I paid to have them destroyed. I was tired of paying for them to be stored. I kept one box. And, of course, I have the masters. Right, right. But, you know, cut to 2012, uh, I was working on my, you know, my fourth album. And I got a song on the soundtrack album of American Reunion, a song called My Generation that I wrote and recorded with the bass player from Puddle of Mud. Um, so, you know, I can still go back and listen to them. But, I mean, I was, I sound different. I was, I wasn't, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like, like Aerosmith when I was 17. I wasn't, I wasn't recording Dream On. I sound yeah. like a little kid when I was 17. <laughs> well, hey, listen, congrats. Uh, congrats on, you put a really nice career together and it's still going strong. Um, you know, congrats also on the, uh, the producing and everything else. Um, 1999 is what we're talking about. We'll talk about as we let you go also. But can you give us a website, social media site, where we could follow your music, follow the band, and everything else that you're doing? Yeah, everything is uh, is at Tin Band, T-I-N-B-A-N-D, Tin Band. So that's, you know, the website, tinband.com, or at Tin Band for TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, you know, Snapchat, Facebook, you name it. Uh, that's where you can find me, and there's, a links links to you know the music from there uh and you can see where i'm touring and what city i'll be in next thomas thanks a lot for being here thank you so much for having me on frank i appreciate it thomas ian nicholas has been our very special guest and uh you know i'm just reading something on him now he started his career on who's the boss playing a young tony dancer oh my god at uh, at 12 years old and uh, yeah, that's interesting. And uh, you know, he he got into uh, feature films, uh, Rookie of the Year, A Kid in King Arthur's Court. Um, you know, and then he got recurring roles on TV shows like Party of Five, and you know, of course, Kevin Myers in American Pie. And uh, you know, for the, for those listening that are that are somewhere around my age, uh, pardon for the pardon me for the blasphemy. I I mentioned American Pie in the same breath as Animal House, and I know some people are going to say, "Don't ever do that again." You know, Animal House was uh, was classic, but to uh, to many people, American Pie, um, first one anyway, was uh, was classic as well. And you know what? They they built the franchise off of it. And, and for good reasons, it was uh, it was feel good for the kids in that area and, uh, you know, time, area of time, I should say. But anyway, uh, his his band, check him out. I love the fact that he's recorded that many albums. He's ditched the first three. He's destroyed the first three, which is uh, which is interesting. Um, but again, uh, with Bowling for Soup, it's a it's a reboot of 1985, the great song by them, tongue-in-cheek song, and 1999 is the name of the song. Thomas Ian Nicholas has been our very special guest, and of course you know him 
as Kevin Myers from the American Pie franchise. And, you know, check out his, his new song. Check out his album. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In many ways, Long Island is the story of America. It's Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. Long Island is definitely the place for you. Now, here's your host, Frank McKay, on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays. Okay. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, the author of What If Love Is The Point, Alexa, well, co-author, I should say. Carlos is not here with us, but Alexa Penavega is our very special guest, and she is the, the co-author of a wonderful book that you can get right now. Again, What If Love Is The Point, and uh, everyone should check it out. It's on Harper Collins, a very positive message coming through here for sure and uh, thrilled to have you Alexa how are you? Thank you for having me we're doing great well you've got to be happy that the book is out now and you could uh, kind of talk about it but uh, give us uh, the the genesis of this book give us the uh, the starting point of when you decided when the two of you decided hey let's let's get it uh, out there let's put our, our story here um, when did that all start um, so, so it was right after we filmed Dancing with the Stars. Um, you know, we, we did that show together. We were the first married couple to ever compete on the show. Um, and you know how shows can be. They want you to be competitive against one another, but we weren't. We were just, you know, we're a happy married couple. So we kept lifting each other up. And, um, you know, they were trying to start some drama, but it just never occurred. And what was crazy was we had so many people write in saying, thank you so much for standing up for marriage. Thank you for making it look fun. You've like reignited our marriage. And we kind of looked at each other. We're like, oh my gosh, we didn't even mean to do this, but they're right. Like nothing on TV makes marriage look exciting. It all looks like this ball and chain, terrible thing that people do nowadays. Like we got to show people how awesome marriage is. And that's kind of where we first got our first kind of spark like we should write a book um but at the time you know this was seven or eight years ago we were not ready to write a book yet we were still early in our marriage um and we just figured you know what god's timing will pan out and um we'll write a book when we're ready but that was kind of the moment that it hit us that we knew we wanted to do something well i think you're getting rave reviews for a reason and you know when you when you write about uh your life and you write about your your marriage and uh, and everything else, and it comes out, uh, it comes out positive, and it comes out um, inspirational. Then you know you did something right, and you know that you're doing something right. Uh, there, there's a process uh, to writing, and uh, and doing it alone is, is one thing, but doing it as a couple, uh, I have to imagine there's some challenges there as well. You know, I'll be honest with you, and I don't know if I'm not saying our marriage is perfect by any means, but um, we work really well together. We've always loved working well together. We try to uh, we try to do as many movies together as possible. We write together. Um, so, so for me, I 
we didn't find it challenging to to work with each other on this just because we were so excited to do it um so yeah i don't i don't know this this was not a a a challenge as far as working together it was more of a challenge because you really have to go back and dig deep into your past and try to remember things and you know these are things that you haven't had to think about for years and years and years so it was almost like crazy therapy sessions it was really funny What, what do you think you know about yourself or each other now that the book's out that you might not have known before the process started um oh gosh you know i don't know again we constantly work together so much that i just felt like we knew most of everything maybe it was just a little bit more in depth to like the stories that we were actually you know telling um but but yeah it was it was all um it was all the the kind of same stuff. It was great, though. I mean, it was such a fun experience, and um, and I think I think people will overall like this book. Is there is there something that uh, that you decided with each other that was off limits? We're not going to talk about this, or we're not going to talk specifically about that. Uh, were there were there guidelines between the two of you that uh, that you stayed away from certain subjects? Um, the only guidelines that we really followed happened to be like how to protect the people in our lives um just because we wanted to be truthful with the story that we were telling but we what we didn't want to do was um um sorry hold on there's water um um what we didn't want to do was hurt anybody or kind of air anybody else's dirty laundry so balancing the truth and and also protecting people yeah well what's changed since the book has come out uh, obviously uh, uh, promoting the book is a whole different process than than actually writing the book but there's two of you and i guess uh, you know i imagine you can kind of you you handle this and you handle that and, yeah. and some of it uh, you're doing together do you like the process of promoting the book um i would say that that's probably the hardest part we're currently on tour right now as a family so my husband is a musician um and we are all living on a tour bus for the next two months so his schedule is really really kind of crazy and kooky um and then we you know between him being on tour and then having to throw um book press on top of that it has been that's probably been the hardest part to manage just because there's so much happening and um my husband has to you know keep his voice rested for the uh for the shows so it's been it's that's the hardest part to navigate, to be honest. I, I've got to believe, because when I hear uh, tour bus, I, I'm thinking fancy RV in, in a <laughs> sense, right? You know, so I'm, I'm listen, thinking that it, sounds exciting to me. And I imagine. Listen, it is. It is a very fancy RV. That's the best way to put it. We're so blessed. We're having such a good time as a family. It, um, we cannot complain. It, it's been so good. Yeah, it's a, a different experience. Have you done anything like this before? Um, so we have, not with our children, but, but we have years ago when he was on his last tour, the summer break tour, um, and this was right before we were engaged, we went around the whole country together um, while, while he toured, and it was, it was so fun. One of my favorite memories, so we were really excited to do it again with kids. 
give us something in the book that you could point to. And of course, we want people to buy the book. Uh, uh, once again, it's what if love is the point. And I don't know if I'm putting the emphasis on the right point, uh, right <laughs> word, but either any way you, you slice it, it's uh, the message is there and it's very nice. Give us something real quick from the book that uh, that you could point out that people could look for and, and find, you know, either some uh, joy in or find some inspiration in. I mean, for us, it, this was really a compilation of how God was working in our lives, even when we didn't realize it. Um, and it was that was probably one of the most fun things was going back and um, putting all of these memories together and, and, and compiling them into this book and going, oh, my gosh, I didn't even realize that God was working here. Oh, my gosh, he was working here, too. So I think there were a lot of revelations even for us as we were writing it. But what I love about it is we talk about the good, the bad and the ugly Um so that way you don't have to live it. <laughs> we lived it for you. Um, and and we just hope that what you can get out of the book um, will just be little nuggets of wisdom that we've learned along the way and um, that we've learned along the way. And, and we hope that it inspires you. Alexa, before you go, can you give us a website or a social media site to follow along with you? Um, yeah, so we are both we are both on social media, Instagram, mine is Vega Alexa and Carlos is the real Carlos Pena. Alexa, congratulations, and thank you very much for being here. Thank you. You have a great day. Alexa Penavega, everyone, has been our very special guest. Her book, along with her husband, Carlos, is What If Love Is The Point? And they they combine their, their, uh, their last names, Penavega, uh, one's name, I don't know if it's Carlos Pena, uh, or if he's Vega, and she's Vega, and they they took the unusual step of combining their their names, and and I know uh, some people are probably like, wow, that's very sweet, and some people are like, oh, God, please stop. But uh, anyway, for for those, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, on uh, on that, hey, you know what? It's it's hard to criticize anyone who's in love and they profess their love to uh, to each other through a book. And again, what if love is the point is the name of it. Uh, these two are Hollywood entertainers and, you know, married couple. And the, this is their debut memoir. As You know, assuming there'll be more coming out, it sounds like they enjoyed the process. I don't know if they enjoy the promoting, but they enjoy the, the process. And uh, they, uh, they gain notoriety from different roles, Carlos on Nickelodeon's Big Time Rush, Alexa in the Spy Kids movies, um, you know, popular actors uh, with uh, with uh, different roles all over the place. And, uh, you know, they, look, it, it, we, we applaud anyone who is happy and enjoying, I do anyway, uh, any, uh, enjoying themselves. I'm, I love my wife. I don't know that we'd write a book. We have written <laughs> books together, but we... Uh, uh, not this kind of book, not a memoir. A memoir is uh, different. So, and you see the front cover. It's uh, it's them on a you know they're beautiful people, and you see them on a beach somewhere. And, you know, looks like the Caribbean or some kind of tropical island, and it's you know it's, it's looking good, and they're very handsome people. And and the book is again, you know, I, uh, like I told you, it's, what if love is the point? But there is a uh, there is a, a, a subtitle there: Living for Jesus in a self-consumed world. So, uh, you know, uh, people of faith, 
And, you know, certainly we applaud that. Uh, you know, we applaud people uh, living, uh, you know, a, a faith-based life. And we applaud people who choose not to live a faith-based uh, life. It's uh, whoever's happy, as long as they're not hurting someone else, more power to them. And, you know, I think we all will agree upon that. It's so hard to be happy. If you can be happy with someone else, great. If you can be happy alone, wonderful. Just uh, don't impose your will on others and make them miserable. That's, that's what we try not to do. Frank McKay here signing off. Alexa Penavega has been our very special guest, co-author of this book. We've been talking about what if love is the point. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you next time on Breaking It Down. This is Breaking It Down with your host, Frank McKay, on 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays.